Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the constant stress and pressure to become something other than who you are. The consequences of living with a self that you feel doesn't measure up, isn't good enough, pretty enough, thin enough, smart enough, or desirable enough. The isolation, fear, and shame. My guest today is Rachel Simmons. She's the best-selling author of Odd Girl Out, The Hidden Culture of Aggression in Girls, and The Curse of the Good Girl, Raising Authentic Girls with Courage and Confidence, and her most recent book, Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Happy, Healthy, and Fulfilling Lives. Welcome, Rachel, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So it seems pretty clear from all angles that we're living in an age of anxiety. And I want to just start with um, a little perspective on why it's different for girls. Sure. Um, You know, I've been an educator for about 20 years and um, somewhat recently a girl myself. And I have watched a lot of things change. I mean, first and foremost, the arrival of social media Um, And we know that girls disproportionately use certain sites like Instagram and Snapchat, and those sites can be really fun, and they can also exacerbate the insecurities that a teenage girl already experiences in ways that you and I didn't have to deal with. Um, You know, for example, we used to go home at three o'clock or whenever and not really know what our friends were doing or who they were with. Now we can see that all the time if, if, if you're a girl. And so that's one big change. Another big change actually really begins with good news, which is that we've given girls more opportunities than they've ever had before. And at the same time, though, the bad news is that we haven't let go of some of the old school expectations of girls. So we've said to them, if you want to go like build a robot, you should go do that. But we didn't say as a culture, you don't have to worry about the bikini body anymore, or you don't have to worry about pleasing everyone and being liked by everyone. And so what psychologists believe this kind of expectation is creating is is called role overload, which is just too many roles for one person to play. And I was really amazed to learn that teenage girls get the least amount of sleep of any group of youth. And I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, it's interesting. I want to talk about both of those points. And, and first, the one about the the constant awareness of what's happening with all your friends. And I hadn't thought about it to the extent I had until I read your book. And I started thinking about also a crush or a, maybe a breakup from a boyfriend. You know, in our day, maybe you drive by and see the person's car parked somewhere and, and, and the, the impact that that would have both physically and emotionally, you know, and, and the heartbreak kind of expanding. And when I read your book, I thought about what it would be like to know that at any moment you could either turn on your phone to look and see where that person was or turn on your phone and and unintentionally see that this person is maybe with someone new and what they're doing and how absolutely horrendous that is. Yeah, I mean, I think it just has collapsed boundaries in ways that actually used to be really helpful for our kids. I mean, you're right. It, it, it is really devastating sometimes to see that. And, and in a day-to-day way, I mean, yes, a breakup can be hard, but let's just take the day-to-day experience of watching your friends do things with each other, maybe with you, maybe without you, watching your friends go on vacations, watching them, you know, have or acquire things that you don't have. I mean, every teenager, I think, 
confronts that feeling of wanting to fit in or worrying about not fitting in. But what social media often does is it kind of puts right in your face everything you have or don't have. And the other point you make about um, the girls having these, yes, now you can do anything, but it comes with the and you should do, especially for my generation, I think. I, when I went to law school, I was the first class that had an um, equal number of, of women to men in the class. And I remember graduating and thinking, we're all going to be ending up on Oprah because there's no way we can do all this. You are now meant to do everything that a man did um, on the same time frame and be a, you know, a perfect mother and look good while you were doing it. And exactly. Be nice. And I... And be nice. And as my friend of mine says, and write thank you notes on time. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a lot. And I think that has trickled down to our girls. I will tell you, you know, I've, I've been on tour with this book for about a month and uh, all over the country. And I can't count the number of moms who've come up to me and said, you know, I know you've written this book about my daughter, but it really is about me. Sort of to your point, you know, many of these moms confront the feeling that they cannot be enough, no matter how hard they try. And of course, if we as moms and parents, if we're constantly plagued by that sense that who we are right now isn't okay, that will trickle down to our girls. Well, and it's something else you talk about in the book that the girls experience, and I'm sure all of us and the mothers are thinking about it. Here's another thing that's our fault. You know, because that's what happens. It gets sort of pegged as once this problem is identified, I think whether or not the culture means it or not, I think especially women tend to internalize and say, wow, well, then this is my fault, too. Oh, I know. And as a parent myself, I mean, I'm so sick and tired of, of feeling completely like, you know, there goes my child and there go I, you know, that I'm always defined by my ch- child's success or failures. I do think, you know, it's it's important for us as parents to understand that while we do have some role to play, that it's not like if we just go to this many parenting workshops or read this many parenting books, we can exclusively shape who our children become. I do think that this cultural moment seems to imply that to many of us, that if we just work hard enough, we can create the kid we want. Um, And that's not going to happen. Our children have obviously predispositions. We know they come out a certain way. So I think when when parents can say, listen, I'm going to do my best and be a good enough parent, and that's going to be enough, Um, I do think that that releases us as parents from the shame and the anxiety. Because here's the thing, you know, the worse we feel about our parenting, it's sort of a spiral downward. We, we make bad decisions, right? Like when I, when I make decisions as a mom from a place of anxiety and fear, from a place of, oh God, what if my kid doesn't or does do this? That's, those are not choices I'm proud of. I mean, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but anxiety and fear are not great parenting uh, influences. Oh, absolutely the same way. And I think also, again, as you mentioned in the book, that that's the same for these kids in all of their situations. When they're acting and testing and interacting and re- having relationships within that place of anxiety and fear, things aren't going to go as well as they could. That's right. And so I ask parents in the book, I I offer a lot of strategies to to parents about, you know, how can you disengage from that anxiety? One question I have parents ask themselves is instead of going to that global place that we often go to as parents, for example, our child, you know, continues to forget to bring their homework in or continues to kind of disappoint us in a particular way. It's really easy to go to this place of what if this means she is X or Y? Um, we move right past the incident and we globalize it. So I ask parents to ask themselves this question, which is, how would I parent right now if I was not afraid? 
In other words, if I as a parent knew that whatever thing that is bothering me or whatever way my kid is falling short, if I knew this would be okay, what would I say in this moment? And often the answer is I'd probably say and do something very different than what I would say when I'm operating from anxiety. Well, and also from a place of support rather than judgment, you know, to let our kids know in those moments that, hey, someone's here for you. You're not alone in this. You're not alone in the world. I've got your back. Absolutely. And I I do think parents themselves need that support network. I mean, we have to have people in our lives that we can go to. I talk a lot about imposter syndrome in this book and how girls often suffer from a sense that they don't belong where they are, that that they're sort of frauds and everyone's going to find out. I think a lot of us as parents feel that way. And so we all need someone we can call when we feel like, you know what, I'm not enough. I'm afraid I don't belong in whatever role I'm in. Um, you know, every parent needs that person. And I think it's it's critical for everyone to really think about, you know, who is that person for you? And if you don't have that person, it's a great opportunity to find a therapist to work with. So I remember reading a book when my daughter's 16. I remember reading a book when she was probably one or two called Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety by Judith Warner. And it was in a similar vein to your book, uh, Enough As She Is, in that sense of we we are these women who've come out of this age of feminism. We're now expected to do it all. Um, we are manic as far as wanting to do it all perfectly, and we can't do it alone. That there needs to be That's support right. in our culture and with our um, our immediate peers and families, but also from from our culture itself. I actually, I love that book and I love that, um, that writer, Judy Warner is terrific. I mean, I do think that to me, when I go around talking about this book and, and the spirit in which I wrote it is one of optimism and motivation. Like I'm an educator and my work is about teaching people skills to make their lives better. I actually feel like for moms who have struggled with a sense of self-criticism, you know, a lack of self-compassion, this is kind of a clarion call to, to change things, right? Like by changing ourselves, by working on ourselves, we can help our daughters in amazing ways. I mean, um, I, I just know that as a parenting expert, there's so much bad news out there. Whereas I feel like what I've tried to show is that there's so many incredible ways we can support our kids by supporting ourselves and each other. So this is an opportunity for women to kind of claim their own enoughness as well. And I think you've done that. Um, what What are some of the not enough ideals that are, are devastating this generation of girls? Well, I think, first of all, this sense that I'm not doing enough is really crippling. I can, I've, I've been joking with my audiences as I travel that when I went to college in 1992, in the dark ages, <laughs> whatever, when I went to college, I spent a lot of time just chilling out with my friends. And actually, the national data reveals that so did a lot of other kids in college. In other words, we kind of were liberated from the all-day confines of high school, and we sort of embraced this idea that, you know, we only had to go to class a certain number of hours a week if you were lucky enough to go to a four-year college. Well, as it turns out, that has vastly changed. Now, kids leave high school, they go to college, and instead of enjoying time together, they fill their days with constant work and busyness. And they do this because, I've learned in my research, that they think that this makes them worthy and competent. Um, And they think that if they're not busy all the time, or if they're not overwhelmed, they're doing something wrong. And so this is like a real red flag for parents to look out for. 
kids need downtime. We all need downtime. And just because you're busy all the time doesn't make you better than the next person. Um, We also see two things happening at the college level. One is loneliness and incredible loneliness because these kids are not really hanging out as much as they did. And two, burnout, right? You're working, you're working, you're working. You don't stop working. You have no downtime. And at some point, you know, it all comes crashing down when you feel like you can't get out of bed. So parents need to pay attention to this and really encourage their kids to rest, to have hobbies, and to have more balance in their lives. And the flag keeps moving, right? The the carrot a little further, a little further. One of the um, girls that you interviewed talked about, well, I'll be happy and enjoy my life when I'm retired because, you know, I, I'm going to pr- good preschool and work hard so I can go to a good elementary school. And then I'm going to go to a good elementary school so I can go to a good middle school, high school, then college, get a good job, have some kids, raise them to do the same thing. And maybe when I'm retired, I can enjoy myself. And you just, it's heartbreaking. No, it totally is. I mean, I, I have a, I work on a college campus in New England and um, I have joked with my, my students. I say, Hey guys, cause I live very close to campus. I say, why don't you guys come in like toilet paper in my house in, in the night? Like go do something fun. I actually have to like pressure them to go be stupid together and just be dumb college kids sometimes like make some bad choices. And I think uh, they, their mindset is basically I'll sleep when I'm dead. Basically, you know, I'll, I'll have fun when I retire and, um, you know, I, I put, a, I always put on my Instagram when they do toilet paper in my house, somebody always claims responsibility a few days later. But I, I think the fact that I have to pressure my own students to have fun is a testament to what's very wrong right now with our culture of work and success. And, and does it matter where that comes from, where that sense of um, having to, to prove oneself and drive, drive, drive to be worthy or do we just move on from the, the fact that it exists? Well, I mean, I think, I think that we, it, it, there's nothing wrong with, with seeking self-worth through work. I mean, especially if you love what you do. I mean, I, I certainly feel like a lot of my identity comes from my work, but it can't all be about that. It, your whole sense of self cannot come from things on the outside of you. Um, and I think it's particularly true, and, and this is what research tells us as well, that if we create our lives based on what serves us individually, what, what people would call self-oriented goals, you know, I want to make money, I want to get into a good college, I want to, you know, do what other people expect me to do, you know, those people tend to be less happy. And they also tend to be less resilient, less tough in the world, because they're really operating according to what other people expect, not what drives them. So it's okay to take some sense of self-worth from your work, but that can't be what it's all about. Can you share some of the statistics that you mention in Enough As She Is about depression levels and feelings of being left out and overwhelmed? Because again, I thought those were staggering and surprising, the the level that they're elevated compared to boys of their same age. Yeah, I mean, this was really distressing um, just to see that, that the girls' depressive symptoms, the reporting of depressive symptoms has, in, has been increasing at twice the rate of boys. Um, and also that twice the number of girls as boys say they, that they feel left out regularly. You know, we also have for the first time ever, you know, the, the highest levels of unhappiness of first year female college students. So college fresh women. And, um, you know, we've long known that, that adolescent girls report feeling depressed at twice the rate of adolescent boys. Um, same is true for women and men. Um, but the reporting of how unhappy they are is really increasing at a clip, strong clip. 
The other thing is, if you work on a college campus, as I do, um, you kind of can't not see the crisis of mental health problems. Like, we have unprecedented demand for mental health counseling. We don't have the, all over the country, when I say we, like we lack the services that are now being demanded by our college students. And so I didn't even really want to write a book like this, but when I, you can't kind of be around kids this age and not see how much in distress they are. And the question I have is like, what, what is going to happen to them in 10 years, right? Is it going to be just burnout at best or, you know, what are we going to see? And and what are your thoughts on why more opportunity hasn't added up to more more happiness and wellness and it kind of has sent girls in the opposite direction? Um well, I think part of it is this continuing expectation that we have of our girls that they're supposed to please other people, right? And so it's like if you give people lots of choices but you also say to them the number one thing you need to do is make sure that everyone around you is happy. It's very difficult to do two things. It's difficult to know what you really stand for, right? Like what matters to you because you're so worried about what other people think. It's also different. It's also very difficult to set boundaries because if you're in this posture of needing to take care of other people, it becomes hard to say, this is what I'm okay with and this is what I'm not okay with. And so I think we have this kind of this collision course where we've got these old good girl expectations of like, please people and don't let them down and do everything right. Coupled with or on a collision course with all of these new choices that we've given them. So I think that's what it's about. This is Ellie Newman on that got me thinking and I'm speaking with Rachel Simmons, author of enough as she is how to help girls move beyond impossible standards of success to live healthy, happy and fulfilling lives. And maybe Rachel, we can talk a little bit because you meant just mention it, you're in a unique position to write the, to have written the book, because you're living with these girls day in and day out on um, college campus of, of Smith College as a leadership development specialist. You talk about the shift of relationships for these girls and, and that relationship, especially at that age, is so critical to their development and sense of self and, and sense of belonging and identity. And that there's been with all of these pressures to excel, there's been a shift in those relationships as far as being maybe more competitive than collaborative. Yes, it's true. And I really think that girls' connections with each other, which are so nourishing for them and which, you know, research shows play a very critical role in their sense of self and in their overall psychological health. You know, the relationships are a real casualty because if you're getting the message that your biggest priority is to succeed, and if you also have the sense, as many aspirational young people do, that getting into college is increasingly mysterious how one does that, right? I mean, there's this, we haven't really talked about this yet, but there is this powerful message coming from the culture for those students who want to get into a four-year college, which is you've got to be perfect, right? Like you've got to be exceptional to get into a good college these days. And so if you've got that message, then not only is achievement your number one priority and who knows how anyone gets into college these days? Well, of course, you're going to start looking over your shoulder. You're also going to start looking over your shoulder and perceiving your peers as a threat if you yourself don't feel like you're good enough, right? I mean, if you don't feel like you belong where you are and that you're constantly having to like convince yourself that you matter, how can you be happy for your friends when they succeed? I can't tell you how many girls I have who say to me, like, I, I, I really love my, you know, this friend of mine 
But I have a hard time being happy for her when she gets an award or when she does well, because I worry that it means that I'm not doing well enough myself. So I find that quite heartbreaking um, in terms of the damage that I'm seeing being done. Yeah, I know you mentioned that girls were consciously picking friends that were in different majors so they didn't have to feel that they were in competition. Or just even just talking to people in different majors, right? Like, like it's just easier to share your accomplishments with someone who isn't interested in them in, in their, for their own personal gain. So they sort of, a lot of, a lot of people have adapted in terms of like, who am I going to tell about the good things that have happened to me? Or maybe I won't tell anybody at all. It's interesting because you talk about when you were in college, how, and, and all us, we had time to chill out and to have a good time. And, um, you know, maybe it was a time of working harder, but I even think then high school, like I remember I, I went to UCLA. I don't think I thought about it until maybe the semester before, before it was time to graduate. And there, there, you know, sometimes you went on college tours, you heard about friends doing it, but there was not what you call now this, um, industrial complex of, of college application in this sense that what one of the girls, Allison 17, says, you have to be better than everyone else, even yourself. Yeah. And I mean, I felt, I always feel that that comment actually sums it up is that, you, you know, you are, you are, comp- you are kind of put in this position of being antagonistic towards your own self. And, and I think part of the subtext of that is that you can't ever be happy when things go well because you're always rushing off to the next box to check off, right? It's like, you can't just be like, oh, you know, I got an A. Let me take a moment and like celebrate myself. Let me, you know, take a a second and give myself credit. It's like, no, what do I now have to do? What's my next thing? Where, you know, we look at so many unhappy adults today and we think, okay, people don't have a sense of self and who they, their authentic self really is and, and what they enjoy or what their passions are. And this is happening to these kids. You talked about a girl who was um, excelling in computer science and because she was good at it, she put all of her focus there and dropped everything else and was going to go to college based on that. And then she says she doesn't even like it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really sums up what is so incredibly challenging is that when you've been pressured by the college admissions culture of, you know, you've got to have the right resume and when the culture expects you as a girl to worry more sometimes about what other people think than what you think, there's a real cost. You make choices that have real costs. You pursue learning, you pay tuition, and then you think, wait, no, this isn't what I wanted. When I'm traveling around, I I often, after I speak about this book, will have a, a young woman come up to me, often in tears, and she'll say something like, you know, I just decided to take time off from college, or I've just moved back home, or, you know, clearly in distress. And what I say to her is, I know you're hurting and I'm so like, sorry, you're going through this and you are lucky if you can make the best of what's happening to you and get yourself right on the right path that feels good to you. You're lucky to go through this at 22 or 25 than when you're 35 or 45. So, cause there are a lot of women out there who only come to terms with how they sacrificed their voices and their interests much later in life. So let's talk about women's voices for a bit. You had said you had a change of heart since writing The Curse of the Good Girl, um, and that you had thought if girls had would could speak their minds and self-promote and take their seat at the table, all would be well. What changed, and why does it turn out that that's not enough? 
Well, it sort of gets to that question of like, what do we do with this generation of, of women who feel like they have to be everything all the time? I mean, there's a quote from a colleague of mine, Courtney Martin, who says, you know, we're, we are the daughters of feminists who told us we, we could be anything, but we heard that we had to be everything. And so what that has amounted to, as we've been talking about, is this real mental health crisis. And so I used to think that it was all about helping girls be anything. It was all about, you know, giving girls confidence and helping them ask for what they need and helping them negotiate, whatever it was, until I started working and closely with these young women who were suffering. And so I began to understand that in order, for example, to help our daughters succeed, we actually have to give them the tools to fail. In order for them to work well, we have to teach them how to have downtime. Um, so you have to kind of do the yin and the yang. It can't all be about, you know, being big in the world. It also has to be kind of taking care of what's going on inside. Um, and that's been my great change of heart, realizing that the way that I was teaching girls and women really wasn't as whole and as compassionate as it needed to be. But I think that part has to be there too. So you, you had just hadn't completed it yet. You got the first part right, I think, for sure. Um, so you graduated from Vassar. You're a Rhodes Scholar. You've written a number of bestsellers. Uh, did you feel enough as a teen? And, and do you feel enough now? I know Odd Girl Out was uh, the book you read about bullying was connected with your life experience. Is this as well? Did this book come out of what what you also have experienced or have experienced recently? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was I, I often joke with my students that I'm a recovering overachiever. And I have tried to really practice the same work that I teach my students around you know, not being driven always by the big performance and instead being able to feel enough as I am no matter what. I mean, I think for me, a couple of things were very powerful. One was becoming a mom, you know, realizing that actually, and I'm a single mom by choice, which means that I, you know, had my daughter on my own and I'm her only parent. And so, you know, that is a pretty explosive event in your life to go through in the sense that you really have to prioritize. And you also, like all parents, have to accept that you can't do everything perfectly and that a lot of things are going to fall down by the wayside. So I had to do my own work, particularly around learning the practice of self-compassion, which is the book has a whole chapter on and which research shows, you know, not only does it help with anxiety and depression and stress, but it also um generally makes us more motivated actually to to be gentle with ourselves in the face of challenges. So that really helped me um, in motherhood. And, and when I was younger and the age of many of my students, I also struggled. I actually dropped out of Oxford when I was there as a Rhodes Scholar and felt terrible shame about that. Um, and so I have had to learn to identify pieces of myself that I know are enough that have nothing to do with what the world expects of me um, and more to do with the things that I value intrinsically, like being a good mom or a good enough mom, um, or, you know, the kind of friend that I am, apart from how many books I sell. So that's been a big process for me. But you, you can't teach this without doing it, right? You have to, you have to do it too. Do you think it's healthier atmosphere for girls at that age to be in an all-girls school? I'm thinking about, and I'm wondering if they're doing it as well in an all-girls school. There's a, a girl that's talking about sitting in chemistry class. Now she can't focus on chemistry because she's so concerned about whether her thighs are looking fat the way that she's sitting in the chair. 
Yeah, I mean, that was one of the really surprising and sad parts of my research was the extent to which girls spend time ruminating about their bodies, meaning, you know, perseverating in their heads about how they look or what they eat or didn't eat or how their friends look. Um, you know, I think I think people's choices about all girls or, you know, co-ed environment, it really depends on the person. I think it's an individual choice based on what they need. Uh, I think there's no question that all girls high schools and colleges can or women's colleges can provide, you know, opportunities that sometimes are not given um, in the co-ed environment. And whether those opportunities are to speak freely in class or to have certain leadership roles, um, but not every student needs that. Not every woman needs that. So I think it depends on what on what the person actually needs. And being at the, the at Smith College, do you have any sense that the system, the industrial complex application process is starting to shift at all? There was a gal who's an admissions counselor at Smith, and she was reacting to one of the comments of having to be perfect and having to have, you know, pretty much started your own company, successful company by the time you got to college to be accepted. And she said, oh, that's not true. You know, we more look at someone having a, a job they might be passionate about, a part-time job. And yet, Yet it doesn't seem that things are starting to shift. And it seems that the place it would have to come from would be the admissions um, offices and the admissions counselor, that they really are driving the ship as far as setting these expectations for, for kids. Well, I do think we're at the beginning of a shift, I, w- I would say. We're at the beginning of a change. We see organizations like Challenge Success which um, is based on the West Coast, but just opened up an East Coast office, which works with schools um, and is working with colleges at this, at this level. Um, you know, we're seeing initiatives, for example, that work with college admissions committees to expand their criteria for admission. So what we really need to see are colleges saying things like, it's not all about the numerical score. We care about the kind of person that you are. And so we are seeing a shift. There is a consortium of colleges that are changing their admissions criteria. How impactful that change is going to be, how seriously that criteria will be taken remains to be seen. But I think the colleges increasingly are well aware that um, the levels of unhappiness and um, even, you know, suicidality in some communities are deeply affected by the sense that, you know, I can never be good enough in order to be accepted. So I do think we're at the beginning of a shift. I I saw that you were speaking in Palo Alto recently, and I know that was uh, one of the sites of a really elevated suicide level for for teens, not just girls, but teens in general. Yes, um, it it is a, you know, there's, there's been a lot of publicity surrounding um, the suicide cluster in that region, and there was I had I added a second night of speaking there because there was such a demand um, for people to learn about the book enough as she is. Um, I think as part of the work that that community is doing, and but I you know I think suicides are obviously tragic and headline grabbing. I also want to say I don't know that Palo Alto is that unusual in terms of communities around the country where we see affluence or we see very driven parents. Uh, I don't think that they're they're that different. There are many, many places like Palo Alto all around the country. And maybe that's one of the surprising facts in the book as well, is that these are often kids who come from affluent or very affluent families that sort of on the outside seem to have it all and and have lives that look picture perfect. Some of them are. I mean, in my book, I really worked with a range of students. um, And and I guess that's my question. Is it what you found across the board? 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, I think, I think it can be driven by different factors um, in terms of the anxiety that is experienced. So for example, if you take first generation college students, meaning that students who are the first in their families ever to attend college, those students are often really struggling with a sense of being imposters. They are, you know, they don't have the privilege of, of knowing how to do college, which is something that, you know, college graduate parents often pass right down onto their young their children. So these first gen students can really be beset by anxiety. They also have the pressure of carrying the weight of their family's dreams on their shoulders. And so they also are struggling with this sense of not being enough. Um, but what's driving them is something really different than an affluent kid who, as you pointed out, looks like they've ha- they have it all. They just feel like they have to be perfect at everything they do because that's just going to define their worth as opposed to, you know, carrying the dreams of their families. So I do think that that everyone out there who's striving is, is getting the same message, but it's often being driven by different factors. One thing you talk about imposter syndrome is it, there's no correlation between the number of achievements accrued and the feeling that you're somehow valid or authentic, that it can just be another one, another one, another one, and there's no sense of that ever being enough. Right. And I do think that that sense that I'm not enough as I am and the belief that I'm an imposter, those are very related Um, because, and, and the people who have imposter syndrome, I mean, there are many celebrities like Maya Angelou or Meryl Streep. I mean, these are people who've talked about feeling like they're frauds and um, and obviously they are far from it. So, so we see imposter syndrome as something that is widely experienced. It doesn't matter how accomplished you are. It tends to be experienced by minorities, by people who are um, overcoming barriers or taking leaps. And in the book, I talk with parents about, you know, how do you talk to your daughter about what to do when she feels like she doesn't belong and to really coach her to understand that, that everybody feels this way, but you can't over identify with that voice. Like, we all have that voice inside of us. That doesn't mean it is us. It just means it's part of us. I love that differentiation you make and that to remind ourselves and remind our kids that, that you, you talk about that as far as grades go too, that you aren't the grades you get in school. That's not all of you. And, and keeping that somehow in your, in your mind and, and perspective. Absolutely. And I think this is, this is the heart of the work at getting our kids to understand the difference between these external standards of success and who they are and inside. And because, you know, for example, the number of likes that you get on a Instagram post, I mean, that's not a statement of how kind you are or how, um, you know, helpful you are around the house. That's just somebody tapping twice on a screen. And so this is an opportunity to really get our kids to understand that those numbers, those grades, those test scores, they do not define us and they aren't actually what's important. I'm speaking with Rachel Simmons. She's the author of Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, drop-in radio, listener-supported. We're streaming live at kdpifm.org. And I want to talk a little bit about the um, the areas that you focus on in the book. Uh, we, we talked about imposter syndrome, maybe a little bit on rumination and, and co-rumination, because this seemed like something that is going on with so many of us all the time, that voice in the head that just keeps going and, and um, weaving, weaving the web. 
Yes. Um, you, you know, I think imposter syndrome is, um, it's so, it's so powerful. And, um, you know, tell, give me a little bit more about how I can answer this question for you. I mean, do you mean what, what do we say to girls or? Well, well, let's talk a little bit just about, you know, maybe we'll focus it on social media because uh, that was another area where the girls are really trying to control the outcome of how they are experienced. And they have this way to craft this perfect image, whether or not it's false version of themselves and project, project it out in, into the culture. Yeah. It's so, it really, I mean, my five-year-old daughter has started to ask me, you know, when are you getting a phone? And my, my initial, what I think to myself is, Oh, when hell freezes over. Um, but of course it won't really be uh, like that. However, um, you know, I think that this is the issue where girls get really drawn in to the illusion that they can create of themselves on social media. And, you know, we've seen research that shows us that girls are playing up only certain aspects of their personality, only certain aspects of their bodies. One of the real new pieces of research to come out um, recently and that I have talked about in my book is that girls increasingly are showing their bodies on Instagram, often, you know, kind of bathing suit pictures that are designed to show off their bodies and the ways that their bodies kind of comply with cultural expectations of thinness. This is really new. Um, it's really only in the past couple of, you know, swimsuit seasons, as it were. And what it's kind of showing us is that girls are turning to social media, not just to connect, right? Not just to like, what are you doing? What are you hanging out? Whatever. It's also that they're going to show off parts of what they perceive to be the accomplishments of being a particular kind of girl. So what the research is telling us is that that's actually creating body shame in the girls who view it. Um, and that's very surprising and it's very new because when we were younger, if you wanted to look at bodies, like perfect bodies, you had to go to the grocery store, you had to buy a magazine, you looked at it, whatever, you know, now there's an instantaneous access to the bodies, not just of celebrities, but your friends. And so this is really new and it's got, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about the fact that we've got to talk to girls about this and make sure they understand, you know, this isn't a statement about who you are. This does not mean a lot of these pictures have been altered. And yes, these are the pictures of your friends. Throughout the book, I think the, the idea of objectification weaves itself through. And that to me is one of the major things that hasn't changed. And the idea of, you know, my son had asked when, when I was working on, on the book yesterday, he sort of said, well, you know, why is it so different for girls? And I thought, I think that's one of the, it sounds sort of trite, but the idea that you have to look good while you're doing all of these things and that how you look is what really matters the most. And yeah, it might be great if you're smart or you're athletic or you're all these other things, but that piece is not going to weigh that you need to be pretty and desirable. It really hasn't. Although I do want to say that, and I have heard this also on the road from the parents who have attended my talks, that that there isn't a lot that's different for, for girls. I mean, 
parents of boys who come to my talk say, hey, look, what you're saying could just as easily be helping my son. And I think that's true. But to your point, there are a couple of things that are different. And, you know, girls do get this message that their worth is defined by their bodies. We don't see boys on Instagram in the same way that we see girls using it and certainly not on the same numbers. We also know that girls have the lowest self-compassion, teen girls, high school girls of any group of youth. We know that girls are more likely to ruminate and kind of sit in their heads and worry over and over again about things. So there are certain issues that I think girls are disproportionately experiencing that that I want to talk to. At the same time, I work with lots of boys, and I think a lot of boys can benefit from this content, too. And the the truth may be that the boys aren't just as willing to share these feelings as as girls are. And that maybe they are experiencing similar. I know my son's terrified to go to eighth grade because they have mandatory PE and he does not want to be in that locker room. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, locker rooms are, what are locker rooms if not just, you know, platforms to show off masculinity um, at, you know, at many, many times. So I, I can yeah, understand and that. He, and he I also, it. I, he I puberty agree. And he's aware yeah. of it. He's a super sensitive kid. And he's like, mom, I'm not going to survive. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, and I do agree too that 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 guys are probably not talking in the same way with the same vulnerability that girls uh, maybe more feel more permission to show. So let's talk a little bit about the constant comparison competition because definitely we know that's something that that boys, girls, men, and women are currently experiencing at an extreme level, and in one way because of social media, because it's always right there in your face. When is it healthy to compare yourself to someone else? When is it um, something that can be motivating in a positive way? Right. Well, one of the things that I was helpful for me to learn in writing this book was that social comparison, you know, comparing yourself to others is actually an important function of adolescence, that this is part of how we figure out who we are. And part of how we make our choices is we look at other people and we learn by watching them. And, and yeah, sometimes by comparing ourselves to them. So there is something quite healthy, um, even, for example, like looking at what's going on right now with teenagers mobilizing against gun control. My guess is, you know, with the rise of certain very public um, and successful teenagers who have become vocal advocates for gun control, um, you know, there are probably teenagers out there comparing themselves to those advocates and saying, oh, I wish I was like that. That's not a bad thing. I mean, that's that's an important thing, example that they set. Um, so that's healthy. I think what's not healthy is, you know, the kinds of things we might compare ourselves to. So sort of comparing our bodies to someone else's and saying, you know, not only do I want that body, but I think that person's better than I am because they have that body, right? Or I want to get that many likes on social media and that person must be better than I am. People must like them more because they've got all of those and, and people must not like me because I don't. So I think it's the kinds of comparisons we make and the judgments that we make when we make those comparisons. So in the last part of the show, I want to talk about some of the strategies that you offer up in Anefashia's. Um, there's step-by-step directions on how to help girls redefine success in healthy ways. And as you say, those of mothers and, and fathers too who are reading it, we can apply it to ourselves, the best way to, to probably start helping our kids. So maybe we'll just pick a couple. Um, how about catastrophe? Emphasizing. Um, why do girls do it in the first place? And um, what are, what's your advice on how to stop doing it? Well, catastrophizing is kind of looking at the worst possible 
part of a situation. Um, another way of another branch of this is called defensive pessimism or expecting the worst. And so this is just like, oh, I'm totally going to fail that test or, oh, the worst thing is going to happen if I try this. And, you know, we do this, this is not just a girl thing. And many people do this as a way to kind of ward off the fear that comes with the prospect of failing. We, we think that if we tell ourselves the worst thing, we're protecting ourselves from it. The problem is that if you constantly look at the worst possible outcome, on some level, you start to believe it. And particularly for girls who will say, well, I can't try out for this play or this team or apply for this job because what if I don't get it? And then my life's going to be over if I don't get it. I mean, it's going to diminish their risk taking. So I think it's, it's important to say to our kids instead, what is the real worst that could happen? Not like the fantasy worst that could happen in this situation, but what genuinely do you feel like is the worst thing that could happen? And can you live with that? And most of the time, my students will say, yeah, well, yeah, I could live with that. I mean, I wouldn't like it, but I could live with it. So that's, that's a really important, there's a lot in the book about, you know, talking with your daughter about how to stop. Well, also throughout the book, you talk about the consequences of some of these things. And it's diminishing the kids ability and willingness to take risks or to try something that they might not be good at. And so they aren't willing to explore and to experience in ways that you you say that's exactly what they should be doing at this time in their lives. Absolutely. I mean, I really, I think it's so critical for parents to know that risk-taking is a muscle that you have to flex. Like I always say to my students, you know, you're not going to wake up one day and just be brave, right? Being brave, being able to face down an unfamiliar situation, this is something that you have to work on and take on like studying for a chemistry test or trying to get better at playing an instrument. And so this is, I don't believe in the, in the idea that we should all do things that scare us every day, you know, to quote Eleanor Roosevelt, but I do think we should regularly be making ourselves nervous. And if we don't, then that muscle atrophies. And and you talk about because then we realize it, that that's actually the doing is what builds the confidence. Absolutely. And, and that comes from the book, The Confidence Code by Claire Shipman and Caddy Kay, which was a big bestseller and looked at all the research that essentially says that, you know, it is only by trying something over and over again and becoming comfortable with the experience of just doing it. That's how we get more confident because really confidence is kind of about, it's not kind of about, it is about proving to yourself that you have the capacity to overcome a challenge. That doesn't mean you have the capacity to be perfect at it. And I think that's a very important distinction, but just sort of knowing that you can face down whatever comes your way, however, you're going to need to do that, but you only gain that belief in yourself by doing it. So Rachel, you're also the co-founder of Girls Leadership, a national nonprofit, and you've developed a couple courses at Smith, the, the Courage course and Failing Well. Maybe we could talk a little bit about those. Sure. Failing Well um, is, was an initiative that was designed to break down the experience, of, or I should say the skill of dealing with failure well into lots of different mini skills. So in other words, if you were like making a recipe of a, a kid, a young person who knew how to handle failure, what, what were the ingredients that you'd put in that pot? And that's really what the experience was about, was about teaching individual skills. So for example, self-compassion you know, how, what are, how can you cultivate that trait in, in young people so that when they fail or when something goes wrong, they know how to talk to themselves in a kind way so that they're not completely flattened by what happened. 
Or how do you set goals? You know, if you set really outsized goals for yourself, not only will you probably not accomplish them, but you'll probably also lose motivation and get dejected. So teaching effective goal setting. Um, so, oh, you know, we just worked on lots of different skills, um, which in turn really helped the students feel that comfort level with, okay, something didn't work out. It's not the end of the world. And what kind of shifts are you seeing in the girls that you're working with? Because, I mean, you really are teaching them how to have control over something that is incredibly valuable, which is their minds and, and what their minds are telling them, and then being able to make really conscious decisions about what they want and who they want to be. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I've been very gratified. In fact, <laughs> Good Morning America did a, a group interview with a bunch of my students at Smith. And at one point, Deborah Roberts, the correspondent from ABC said, you guys have spent too much time with Rachel. I need to talk to students who have real problems with failure because they were talking about basically like, you know, I, I realize that, um, you know, I know it's not the end of the world or I know how to talk to myself when something goes wrong and it makes them braver. I mean, I think the upshot of this kind of work is that you just don't feel as scared of the world. And so those are some of the things that I see. I also see students doing things like telling me, you know, I wouldn't have applied for this job or this graduate school because in the past, because I would have been so afraid to get rejected, but now I am applying because I know I can deal with it. Um, so again, just kind of goes back to that, that, that statement earlier, which is if we want our kids to succeed, we have to teach them how to fail. And do you see a potential for developing a curriculum or is it in the works that can be at, at high schools and, um, and colleges across the country? Well, that's a great idea. Maybe I should, after this uh, interview, maybe I should go start that. Because there, there, I can't imagine anything that could be more valuable. And, and it seems to really be something that's missing in, in our schools. Um, well, I think it is a great idea. And, I, I, you know, the, the problem, of course, is that time is generally the most valuable resource a high school uh, has. And so the question is, which schools are going to are going to allocate their time for this kind of work? And I think that remains to be seen. We might have to brainstorm on that. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I've been speaking with Rachel Simmons. She's the author of Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. And then in um, parentheses, and their moms and dads too, I think is is definitely uh, uh, beneficial for all. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Rachel. Super nice to talk to you. And thanks for the book. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.